Thank you so much, Pastor. God bless you today. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke in chapter number 10. Luke chapter number 10, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 25. And, and what a joy it is to open the Word of God. What a privilege it is to be at Berean Baptist Church. And I, I'm grateful and thankful for your love for Christ and love for the Bible. And we're trusting and praying God to do mighty things in these days through His Word. I, I think we all recognize that the wheels are coming off. And, and uh, the only hope for the child of God is to return to the Word of God. Nothing should surprise us out there. Uh, it's all in the book, and the Bible doesn't say it's going to get better and better, but it does say it's going to wax worse and worse. And uh, we watch it every day on the news. We watch this world fall apart. And yet for people who know Christ and know Him as Savior, what a strong rock we can run to, the Word of God, in times like these. You have your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter 10. Of course, the Lord Jesus is on a long and a slow journey that ultimately will bring him to Jerusalem. There he'll die on the cross for you and for me. And, and along the way, one more time in verse number 25, the Bible says Jesus is going to meet up with a lawyer. Now, when we read the word lawyer, we put on our American glasses and, and we imagine somebody who's been to Yale or somebody who's been to Harvard Law School and, and uh, we think of somebody who's versed in the Constitution of America. But when you come to the Bible in the New Testament, a lawyer to them would be someone as their law was Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Their, law, their lawyers would be someone who were experts in the Bible. So while we look at a lawyer as somebody who's going to Yale or Harvard, uh, well, their lawyers, they would be more like theologians. So if they went to Yale, it'd be divinity school. If they went to Harvard, it would be the same thing. And, and so we are looking at someone who is their expert in the Bible. So in Luke chapter number 10 and verse number 25, the Lord Jesus has an appointment with one of these lawyers. If you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to God's words this morning. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Father, we ask for your help now as we go to the words of our God. I pray that the man, the woman, maybe the boy or girl that has never been saved, they would understand this morning that it is not by works of righteousness, but it is by the great grace and the mercies of God that we are saved. Father, for your children, I pray that the word of God would store up our minds by way of remembrance. Bring us back to the Savior who so loved us. So we ask for your help in the great name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. As the Lord Jesus is about to meet up with our lawyer friend, the Bible tells us that, that he stands up to respect the Son of God. Well, now, this is kind of as it was in the old days of America. When a teacher would walk in the class, the, the students would stand. It was a sign of great respect. And as the student stands up, as the lawyer stands up uh, ostensibly to show great honor to Jesus, the truth is the Bible's about ready to expose him as being a real phony. 
You know what this guy is like. You don't see me this so much in high school, but in college you do. There's always somebody who thinks they're smarter than the teacher and smarter than anybody else. And they're going to ask a question of the teacher, but the question is A, to let everybody know how smart they are, and B, to let everybody know how wrong the teacher is. Well, that's kind of the setting here, and it looks good, it looks respectful, but the Bible shines the light of day on him, doesn't it? Because though he stands up and appears to honor Jesus on the outside, the Bible tells us his motive is to tempt him. And one more time, and by now, had we started in Luke 1, we'd look at that verse and shake our head and say, here we go again. It is the story of religion in the book of Luke. The doctors and the scholars and the reverends, they come with their clipboards and their pens and they're just waiting to catch Jesus at his words. They're just waiting for Jesus to say something they don't like. Aye, they are phonies and they are frauds and they are hypocrites and they are fault finders. So it should not come as a surprise our lawyer friends ready to do the same. So he stands up putting on the dog now, showing this great outward respect. And the Bible tells us he asked this question in verse number 25. He said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's not a very long question, but I got to tell you, to ask such a short question and to get so many things wrong, that's really hard to do. I mean, it's hard to get so many things colossally wrong with one short little question, but somehow the guy manages to do it. I mean, number one, when it comes to going to heaven, Jesus is not master, Jesus is savior. Number two, when it comes to going to heaven, could I paraphrase Ronald Reagan? I is not the solution, I is the problem. Number three, when it comes to going to heaven, the wrong word is the word do. The correct word would be done. And number four, when it comes to going to heaven, you do not inherit eternal life. Now, it is true that once you are born into God's family, eternal life is an inheritance we receive. However, that's not the thinking of our lawyer friend. In the first century in Israel, so long as you were born into a Jewish family, you had the right inheritance. You had the right genes. You were going to inherit eternal eternal life. Thank you, Father Abraham. So other than the fact that the guy got everything wrong, it really is a good question. It really is hard to be so smart and ask such a dumb thing. It really takes a lot of work to do it. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And one quick question, he gets a lot wrong. Well, I look at the end of verse number 25 thinking this is going to be good. You know, what can I tell you? See, I didn't grow up in the Northwest where you people are so nice. I didn't even grow up in Wisconsin where the people are nice. No, no, no. I had the curse of growing up halfway between Boston and New York. And I don't know, maybe in the deep south, you know, people stab each other in the back. Where I grew up, nobody ever stabbed anybody in the back. Oh, no, they did it right in the stomach, you know. And so I'm used to the sarcasm, and I'm used to the heavy hitting. You grow up halfway between Boston and New York, you got to have a little thicker skin, I guess. So I come to verse 26 thinking, you know, with my New England way of thinking, this is really going to be good. I mean, Jesus is going to hammer the guy for the ages. You know, I've done some things I'm not proud of, and maybe you've made a few things in your life you wish you could take back. But the good news is those things are not written in the Bible. But when Jesus hammers somebody in the Bible, they are hammered for all of eternity, you know? I mean, there's no way of getting away from this. And I am thinking, here's this guy. He's here to embarrass Jesus. He's trying to trip him up. And, and you know, he asks a, a softball question, a first-grade Sunday school class question, and now Jesus is going to hammer the guy for the ages. But, you know, he doesn't. 
And instead, in verse number 26, he, Jesus, said unto him, the lawyer, what is written in the law? How readest thou? So it is one more time in the book of Luke, and this happens frequently, where Jesus answers a question with a question. But it's not just a question, it is the question. You know, in Bible times, especially where the story takes place in northern Israel, 90% of the people were illiterate. So if you wanted to read the Bible, A, you probably couldn't read, and B, even if you could, you probably didn't have a Bible. So if you wanted to hear from the Bible, you'd go to the synagogue. When the crowd had assembled, there was somebody who was the reader. They could read. They would unscroll the scriptures, and then the synagogue's ruler would ask the question, How readest thou? How readest thou is their version of what does the Bible say? That was not a brilliant answer. Here is this guy trying to embarrass Jesus. And when I'm thinking, yeah, sick him, you know, go get this guy. Instead, the Lord Jesus puts it right back on him. He says, okay, well, if you want to know how to inherit eternal life, what does the Bible say? And to our lawyer friend's credit in verse number 27, he not only quotes the Bible, but he does so accurately. First from the book of Deuteronomy and then Leviticus 19. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. Well, the Bible says in Deuteronomy you have to love God. And not just love him, but love him with all your heart. You know, to us, the heart is the home of your emotions. But, but in Bible times, the heart wasn't the home of emotions. The heart was where you made your choices. Well, when you love Him with all your heart, it means you always choose what God wants. When you love Him with all your soul, the soul is the home of your want to. So your want to, I always want what God wants. When you love Him with all your mind, that means you're always thinking what God wants you to think. And if you love Him with all your strength, you're always doing what He wants you to do. So we said, well, the Bible says to love God and then to love thy neighbor as thyself. And you know, that's pretty much religion's roadmap to heaven, isn't it? You want to go to heaven? You want to inherit eternal life? What does the Bible say? And he says, well, the Bible says to love God and to love your neighbor. It's very interesting, is it not? There are 613 laws that he could have quoted from. And very conveniently, he has managed to leave 611 of them aside, and he's only concentrating on two. And he says, you've got to love God and to love your neighbor. And of course, the Lord well could have said, how you doing on the other 611? And, and you know, if the Lord ever took the law and really drove it into this guy, it'd be the same result as if he drove it into me. I got to tell you, not one of us would be standing but conveniently, 611 laws have been laid aside, and the man basically says, I can inherit eternal life by loving God and loving my neighbor. So in verse number 28, Jesus, that's the he there, said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Does that answer bother you a little bit? I mean, if you've been around Berean Baptist Church very long, right about now you got to be thinking, whoa, wait a minute now. That's not the answer I would have expected. Why, isn't it true that there are, give or take a few, about 110 times where the New Testament says, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Heaven is for him that worketh not, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. And there are 110 verses that tell us that no one will ever go to heaven by their works. Isn't there a book in the Bible called Galatians that is there to tell us by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified? And yet the Bible tells us when you follow the conversation, the man says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what does the Bible say? He says, the the Bible says to love God and love your neighbor. It says a little more than that. And Jesus says, fine, this do and thou shalt live. 
The operative word in that verse is that word do. He doesn't say do it one time, but the word do means do it constantly. No, if you want to go to heaven by loving God and loving your neighbor, Jesus says, okay, fine, let's see you do it. Just do it, not once, not twice, but every moment of every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade of your life, you have to love God and love your neighbor. If you're going to go to heaven by loving God and loving your neighbor, well, that's what you have to do. Fine, go ahead and do this. Let's see you do it. Let's see you do it every single moment of your life because if you want to go to heaven by loving God and loving your neighbor you're going to have to do this constantly well our friend has a real problem here doesn't he what I find fascinating in verse number 29 is the business about loving God he conveniently lays that one aside of course he did can you imagine if Jesus looked at you or he looked at me or he looked at this guy and says, oh, so you always love God with all your heart? You always choose what he wants? Oh, so you're always thinking what God wants you to think? Oh, so from the moment you wake up in the morning till you go to bed at night, every waking moment you are actively working physically for God? You know, had the Lord Jesus gone there, well, that man would have been exposed just like I would be. And, and so very conveniently, he's going to eliminate law number 612, and he's going to boil it down to one thing. He's going to boil it down and pin his hopes on I can go to heaven by loving my neighbor as myself. Okay, fine. You want to go to heaven by loving your neighbors, Jesus says, this do and thou shalt live. But you're going to have to do this all the time. And you're not going to do this once or twice. You know, it's not going to be, well, seven years ago I did this. Oh, no. No, if you're going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, then you're going to have to do what the Bible says every moment of every day, of every week, of every year, of every decade of your life. There never can be a moment where you don't love your neighbor. Now the guy's got a problem. See, for my wife and I, we live in Phoenix. Next door to us lives Joe and Linda, who are the greatest neighbors in the whole world. For us to love our neighbor, at least going in that direction, not a problem at all. I mean, if you had a Joe and a Linda living next door to you, it'd be an easy thing to love them. You know that story in the Bible about pounding on the door at midnight and asking for a loaf of bread? And the guy says, yeah, come back tomorrow. Not Joe, not Linda. I don't know. No, and if they didn't have it, they'd run down a Safeway and they'd get it. I mean, we are talking about absolutely great neighbors, the greatest neighbors that anybody could ever have. You know, one day Joe started talking about moving and he got up the next morning and wondered why he had four flat tires. I don't think he's figured it out yet. But you understand... When it comes to having great neighbors, my wife and I have got the greatest in the world. It just doesn't get any better than Joe and Linda. So if everybody had a Joe and Linda next door and you were going to go to heaven by loving your neighbors, there's a possibility. But you know, you may not have a Joe and Linda living next door to you. And the guy in the story, Mr. Lawyer, apparently he didn't either because you will notice the question in verse number 29, he willing to justify himself. And my, could that ever preach? It is what religious people do. Uh, they want to make themselves just before God. They want to do certain things, pray certain prayers, give certain gifts so that one day they can justify themselves. He willing to justify himself. He, well, he's going to ask the $50,000 question. Who is my neighbor? 
See, this was the big issue 2,000 years ago in Israel. Because if you were going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor and you had to constantly do this if you wanted to live, the problem is not everybody's got a Joe and Linda living next door. So this became a big bone of contention. You know, what if my neighbor next door is unloving? What if they're unlovely? What if I can't love my neighbor? So the scholars and the experts would get together and they would debate this and they would write papers on this. And do you know what they finally concluded? This is what religion does. See, religion wants to justify oneself. So religion comes along and says, no, 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 no. When the Bible says love your neighbor, it doesn't mean neighbor next door. The neighbor, they said, is anybody you like. Well, that really becomes convenient, doesn't it? And that's what religion does all the time. I mean, you know, you may not get this, but, but I'll tell you, your pastor, anybody who studies the Bible and things about the Bible, you almost laugh sometimes. And the scholars and the experts come up and say, well, that doesn't mean it. One guy said, you know, all have sinned. All does not always mean all, all of the time. A guy actually wrote that. And, and I mean, this is what religious people come up with. You know, all doesn't mean all. Always doesn't mean always. There's exceptions to everything. So the religious people in that day said, oh, yeah, you got to love your neighbor if you want to go to heaven. But the good news is your neighbor's anybody that you like to love or you want to love. Boy, is that ever convenient. And so here's this man. Follow the story with me now. Mr. Lawyer stands up to trip Jesus up. He's a phony and a fraud with all this great respect, you know. <clears throat> He's honored Jesus. And tell me, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the Bible say? The guy says, well, the Bible says to love God and love your neighbor. Fine, and then just do this and thou shalt live. And the guy's thinking, love God and love your neighbor 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all of my life. He says, let's just get this down to loving your neighbor. So <clears throat> you know the big question out there, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? So to a man who is trying to work his way to heaven by loving his neighbor, notice what Jesus says in verse number 30. Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You say, oh, the story of the Good Samaritan. No. No, this is not the story of the Good Samaritan. In the Bible, he is never called the Good Samaritan. Not one time. Hey, the reason he is not called the Good Samaritan is because he is not a Good Samaritan. He is an absolutely perfect Samaritan. You see, all of my life, I grew up in church and Sunday school, right? And the Sunday school, you be a good Samaritan. Look, we are actually looking at a story in the Bible that maybe, just maybe, somebody could stand up in a public school and read this story and not go to jail. You know, just maybe that could happen. I mean, this is the one story that even the worst of politicians, they know. You be a good Samaritan. You be a good Samaritan. But that's not the point. And nor does the Bible say that. Nor are we ever commanded to be a good Samaritan for a very good reason. He is not a good Samaritan. He is an absolutely perfect Samaritan. So here is this man thinking, I can go to heaven by loving my neighbor. And by the way, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, okay, well, I'll be happy to tell you, A, who your neighbor is, and B, how you got to love him. Because if you're going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, you have to do this every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of your life. Not one time, you know, 27 years ago, but this is how you got to live absolutely every day if you're going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor. 
Jesus said a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a 17-mile journey. Today, there's a nice highway. In Bible times, there wasn't. It would go down a canyon, and you'd literally switch back and forth, and, and why there were boulders, and there were caves, and, and for that reason, bandits would hide out in those caves behind those rocks. So this road got a, a title. It got a nickname in Bible times. It was called the Bloody Way. It was so dangerous. It was so risky. And the Bible tells us a man has taken his journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And notice the phrase, the words count now. It says that he fell among thieves. So he didn't fall amongst a thief. This is not somebody saying, stick them up. The Bible tells us they are organized bandits. He falls among a group of thieves. So this is their job, so to speak. They come out from behind that boulder. They slip out from that cave. The poor guy doesn't have a chance. And the thieves the bandits come up to him and notice what they do because this really matters. First, it says they stripped him of his raiment. So they take him and they take his clothes. And, and this is going to count because, you see, in Bible times, in New Testament times, not that this is in the Bible, but in New Testament times in Israel, everything mattered where you were born into society. There, of course, was the upper class. Then there's the middle class. There's the lower class. There would be the servant class and then the slave class, eh, give or take a little. And so you'd have all these different classes. And, and when you would meet a stranger, well, if they were above me or equal to me, then I would have to help them. I would have to respect them. But you know, if I'm in a class above them, there's nothing to see. I don't have to worry about this. And when you would meet a stranger on the street, there were two ways you would know into which class they belonged. Number one, you would look at the way they dressed. Rich people dressed a certain way and the poor people dressed a certain way. In America, the rich people wear clothes with holes in them. You know what I mean? That's kind of how it works nowadays. At least it seems that way. And, and the poor people dress a certain way. The slaves didn't own shoes. So you could look at somebody and by the way they dressed, you would know what class they were in. Then number two, you would talk to them and when you listen to them speak by their language, by the words they would use, you would know where they fit into society. So it was how did they dress and how did they talk and when the Bible tells us the thieves attack this guy, they strip him of his clothes. So now he's by the side of the road and you can't look at him and know what class he belongs to. But worse than that, the Bible says they wounded him and departed. And notice the words, they, leaving him half dead. So half dead kind of paints a picture for us. But in Bible times, half dead was a medical description. You know, it's kind of like being in a hospital and you got one to ten, smiley face to frowning face or screaming face. Well, that's kind of the way it was then. Unfortunately, number nine was half dead. And if somebody was half dead, it meant that they were unconscious. So now you see the problem. Here's this poor mangled guy on the side of the road. Number one, he's naked. You can't look at his clothes. And number two, he's half dead. He's unconscious, so you can't talk to him. And now you can't, what, you know, where does this guy fit? Do I need to help him? Does he need to help me? Are we on an equal footing here? Am I more important than him? Is he more important than I am? I mean, with a guy naked and a guy unconscious, there is absolutely no way to know. So sure enough, by chance, the Bible says in 31, there came down a certain priest that way. The priests were always, always, no exceptions, upper class. 
So here comes Mr. Priest, you know, and he comes running down the street, and he looks over there, maybe caught a quick glimpse, and nothing to see. You know, the chances of this guy being in my class, you know, I know the rest of the priests, and I know this, and then the chance of that guy being in my class are just about zero. And so for Mr. Upper Class Priest, there's nothing to see here. And the Bible tells us the priest comes that way, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Then in verse number 32, here comes a Levite. Now, this is a little bit more of a problem because the Levites are not upper class. They're the middle class. They're kind of like assistant priests. And, and until they became one of the big boys, they're right in the middle class. So now you have a problem because most likely that guy's not upper class, but he could be in my class. And if I don't help him, then I'm in big trouble. And maybe that's the reason the words are a little different. It says, when he was at the place, he came and looked on him. You know, Mr. Upper Class walks by, nothing to see. But this guy goes and he takes a look. You know, he, you know if he had a cell phone, he would have called 911. It wouldn't have worked on the bloody way, but he would have tried. And, and I mean, if the guy could have, you know, he probably really felt his pain. I, I mean, I don't know, but maybe they had a, a rubber band they put around their wrist, you know, a certain color, red, green, yellow, blue, whatever. And, and that thing tells you that I care. Now, I may not do anything, but I'm going to put the band around my wrist and everybody will know how much I care. Everybody will know how compassionate I am. Look, I put a rubber band around my wrist. Don't you know how much I care? Isn't that our society? You know, I feel your pain. Isn't that enough? Well, no. Because whether one guy says, I couldn't care less, and the other guy says, I feel sorry for the guy, both of them kept walking down the street, and that poor mangled guy, it really didn't matter if people care. If the people didn't care, he's still by the side of the road. So imagine you're listening to Jesus. You know, that, that must have been something just to hear Jesus tell a story. You know, you know, you know where this goes. I know where this goes. But imagine it's the first time you're listening to Jesus. And, and if we were there, you know, I think to hear Jesus preach, but especially to tell a story, we, we would be there, you know, and we'd say, you know, when was the last time I blinked, you know? Or uh, uh, I got to tell yourself to breathe, you know? Wow, listen to Jesus tell the story. And the Jewish priest comes by, and he's the bad guy. And then here comes the Jewish Levite, and he's the bad guy. So you come to this point in the story, and what you are expecting is that Jesus is going to make the hero of the story another Jewish guy but when the Bible tells us as Jesus tells the story in verse 33 and he said a certain Samaritan see we can read the story but you know what we can't do we can't hear it and when we get to heaven you know I'm hoping you go to the library you check out the DV okay in heaven it's up in the cloud I get that but you know what I'm saying you know you just want to just to hear Jesus tell the story. And if this was recorded, you know what I'm going to guess? I'm going to guess in front of this Jewish crowd now, a multitude, that when Jesus comes to this point and he said a certain Samaritan, that you could hear a gasp and a groan. Do you know what that word was like? To the Jewish people, that would be like a mean teacher running her fingernails down a chalkboard. You know why America's so soft? Because everybody under the age of 30 has never heard a teacher run her fingernails down a chalkboard. I'm trying to say, no wonder there's no character left in America. You haven't heard anything until you've heard that. And I got to tell you, it would be hard to imagine anything more grievous. And when Jesus said a certain Samaria, you can almost imagine the reaction. Because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And the other side of that coin is the Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. And for the Samaritan to be better than the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite, unheard of. 
So the certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And what follows next in verse number 33 is what the English teacher is going to call a polysendenton. Boy, Google can make you look smart on a Sunday morning. Aren't you impressed? You should be very impressed. A polysendenton. You remember when you went to school, right? The teacher says, no, 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 no. You, you got to get rid of the ands and you got to put commas in there. Well, a polysendenton gets rid of the commas and puts the ands back in. And, and, and. and. And while our English teachers told us back in elementary school, you don't write like that, there is a reason for this. The reason is because when you come to a text like the Bible and you see the word and, 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 it's kind of the Lord's way of saying, I know you humans. And I know when you come to a list, you put it on cruise control to get to the end of the list. So the word and is God's way of saying, notice every single thing. And the Bible says a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him. He is risking his life. You know, those bandits are still behind that boulder. Those bandits are still in that cave. And when the Bible tells us that he went to that poor, mangled, unconscious man, he is risking his life. Then the Bible says, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. You know, travel back then with the first aid kit. So to bind up his wounds, he's got to rip his own clothes. You would expect him to pour the wine in first, then the oil. The, the, yet the Bible tells us is backwards here. The oil, the soothing of the pain goes first. The wine, the disinfectant goes second. And this man is in such bad shape, you got to wonder if he's going to make it. Now the Bible tells us after he rips his clothes and he binds up his wounds and set him on his own beast. In America, we would call that he just gave him the keys to the car. He's going to walk the rest of the way and the man is going to ride the beast. Then the Bible says, and brought him to an inn. Well, today, I think there's a tourist trap on the way, but then there were no inns on the bloody way, which means that he's not only got to take him all the way down that mountain and canyon, now he has to go inside the city limits. He risked his life with those bandits still there when he went to him. Now he is risking his life, perhaps even more so, by entering into the city limits of Jericho. Now, you read that and I read that, but a preacher put it this way. I think he got it right. He said, for that Samaritan to enter into the Jewish city of Jericho with an unconscious, half-dead Jewish man on his beast, he said that would be like in 1875, an American Indian walking into Dodge City with an unconscious cowboy over his shoulders. You know, in Dodge City, they're not going to ask the Indian any questions. And in a place like Jericho, they're going to assume you did this. He is risking his life again. You know, he just come to the city limits and drop the guy off. We just clap for the guy and say, what a good guy. But no, the Bible says that he brought him to an inn and took care of him. What does that mean? And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence. Two pence is enough money to pay the hotel bill for the next 14 days. You know, you got to understand, this is not like America. You know, you don't pay your bill. What's the latest one now? You're good till like November 1st or something? <laughs> you, know, you don't want to pay the rent? Don't pay the rent. You know, you want to walk into a store in San Francisco and take $900 worth of stuff? <laughs> Have a good time. No, you can't even call the police. It's not like this. In Bible times, if you didn't pay the rent you're on the street and I mean if you don't pay it tonight you're on the street you say but the guy's unconscious then he's on the street unconscious they don't care you pay the bill or you're out and this guy reaches into his own purse and he pays the next two weeks of rent and not only does he pay for the rent the Bible tells us he gave to the host and said unto him take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again I will repay thee you be a good Samaritan impossible Nobody's going to do this. 
You see, the Bible tells us this guy risks his life not once but twice. He rips his clothes to bind up his wounds. He gives him the keys to the vehicle. He brings him into the city. He goes to the inn. He pays for his medical. He pays for his housing. He pays for his food. And then he says, I'm coming back in two weeks. And if he's still not better, I'll cover it from then. In other words, this guy says, I'm taking care of absolutely everything for this guy until he is healthy enough to do it on his own. You be a good Samaritan. Nobody's ever done this. Somebody say, well, you know, there are a lot of people out there that, that work for the ambulance, a lot of people out there that work, you know, for the fire department. They do some great things. Yeah, and they get paid for it too. And I'm not saying that's a small thing, but it is what happens. Not this guy. Twice he risks his life to foot the bill to give this guy everything that he needs. And if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, this is how you got to do it. No, 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 no. Not, not three years ago, you know, I went and changed the tire for the old lady down the street. That's not what it means. It means that you've got to give your wealth. You've got to give everything you've got. You've got to give them the keys to your car. You're going to have to give everything, pay their medical, pay their health, pay their housing. You're going to have to do this, and you're going to have to do it for people that you don't even know, and you're going to have to do it for people that you don't even like. And you're going to have to do it every single day of your life if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor. You be a good Samaritan. That's not why this story is in the Bible. You know why the story is in the Bible? Not so you be a good Samaritan. It's in the Bible so you and I would say, I can't be a good Samaritan. See, religion says you can go to heaven by loving your neighbor. And Jesus said, well, this is how you got to do it. And not only do it once, this is how you got to do it every day. And there's not a person alive that ever remotely could even come close to this. This is how you got to love your neighbor. And your neighbor's not just Joe and Linda. Your neighbor's the guy, other guy. Your neighbor's the people you don't like. Your neighbor's somebody you don't even know. And this is how you're going to have to love them. And this is what you're going to have to give. And this is what you got to sacrifice. Because if you're going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, that's how you got to do it. And you got to do it every day. There never can be a day where you don't. All of a sudden, the story is very different. This is not here so you be a good Samaritan. It's there to tell us if I'm going to go to heaven by loving my neighbor, I'm in big trouble. And while people would say, well, that's horrible, and that's terrible, that's the greatest thing that can happen. Because pastor will tell you the hardest thing in seeing somebody saved is getting them lost. And how many times did Jesus say it? And he didn't just say it once. He said it multiple times. And he said it in different ways, didn't he? They that are whole need not a physician. That they that are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Nobody can ever get saved as long as they're trying to be good enough for heaven. Nobody will ever get saved as long as they say, I love my neighbor. Nobody will ever get saved as long as they think they are good enough to go to heaven. The only person that can ever be saved is the one who realizes I can't do that. That makes me helpless and hopeless, or the Bible word would be lost. And when you're finally lost, that's a great place. Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to seek and to save those who are religious. He can't save them because they think they're going to go to heaven by their works, by their gifts, by their prayers, by their deeds. Hey, he can't save those people that are doing this and doing that and they're convinced that I can work my way to heaven. There is no possible way for somebody like that to be saved. 
No one can be saved and rescued until they are lost. And when we come to a story like this in the Bible and we walk away and saying, that's how you got to live to go to heaven, I'm in big trouble. And when people realize I'm in big trouble, they're ready for the answer. It's kind of like somebody in the lake that's drowning. If they're trying to save themselves, you can't help them. It's kind of like somebody in a burning building trying to rescue themselves. You can't do anything. But when that guy in the lake finally says, I can't save myself, throw me the life jacket. When somebody in the building says, I can't save myself, give me a ladder. When somebody stops trying to save themselves, they are able to be rescued. And as long as somebody is convinced I can go to heaven because I love my neighbor, Jesus did absolutely everything he could to say you can't go to heaven that way. And what has religion done? It's taken this incredibly powerful story that is in the Bible to tell a religious man you cannot work your way to heaven. And look what religion does. They take this story and turn it around and say you can go to heaven by working your way there. This story is not in the Bible, so you be a good Samaritan. It's there to tell us you can't be a good Samaritan. But when you get to that place, you're ready to hear the amazing story how Christ died for our sins. That he was buried and he rose again the third day. And the Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Nothing in that verse about praying, about giving, about loving, about being a good neighbor or anything else you want to name. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The only one who can be rescued is the one who first realizes they're lost. And as long as you think you're going to go to heaven because you love Joe and Linda, the Lord can't save you. But when you realize not by works of righteousness which I have done, I'm the sinner who needs the Savior. You're ready to come to the Bible and see how to be saved. Would you let us help you do that this morning? Father in heaven, I'm so grateful and thankful for this mighty story in the Word of God. And, and Lord, we watch a spokesman for religion say what religion always says. There's a prayer to pray, a church to join, a gift to give. There is something I can do to impress God. And yet what impresses God is a broken and a contrite heart. Before anybody can be saved, they have to be lost. So I pray that the Word of God would do what that story's intended to do to break the ground of our hearts and lives, to help a man, a woman, maybe a young person understand that all the works of righteousness which we have done will never impress God. They will never save a soul. I wonder before I finish praying if there might be somebody in this room today that say, you know, preacher, that story is in the Bible for me. All my life I've tried to be a good boy, a good girl, a good husband, a good wife, a good grandfather, a good citizen. All of my life I've tried to be a good Baptist, a good Catholic, a good Methodist, a good fill-in-the-blank with the religious name. All of my life I have tried to do the very best that I can, and here I sit today, a sinner. And if that's how you got to love your neighbor to go to heaven, I'm in big trouble. And by the way, that's just one of 600, he could have picked any one of the other ones, couldn't he? I wonder if somebody here would say, Preacher, I need you to pray for me. But more than that, I need Pastor Reno to help me today. 
I'm the one who's helpless and I'm the one who's hopeless. I'm the one who is lost. And I will never get to heaven by works that I have done because God knows what I know. I have sinned against him. I wonder if there's somebody here today that says, Preacher, I need you to pray for me. But more than prayer for me, I need pastor to have somebody help me from the Bible. I want to know how the Bible says a sinner like me can go to heaven. I'd like to pray for you. And today, Pastor Reno wants to help you right out of the Bible. So is there somebody like that? Would you just quietly, and I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm not going to walk down to you, I'm not going to do that, but, but if you'd raise your hand, just slip that hand up, I'd love to pray for you, and my friend Pastorino wants to help you right from the Bible. Is there somebody like that? That's me. I'm the one who is lost. I'm the one who needs the Savior. Would you lift that hand? We'll pray for you. If you'll let us, we'll help you from the Bible. Pray for me. My Father, we give you the invitation now and, and ask you to do what a preacher in a church cannot do. Oh, Lord, sinners need a Savior. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. Our only hope is Jesus who died and rose again. So I pray that as we give the great invitation of the Bible, that a man, a woman, a young person without Jesus would come, that we'd open this book and show them from the Bible how to be saved. I pray it in the great name of Jesus. Would you stand together with me prayerfully? And